This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. How's it going, party people? Another edition of Stark Reality with your host, myself, James Deere, Small Change, whatever you remember, really. This time around, we have journalist and podcast host, Rania Kalik. She uh, is a writer and producer at Soapbox, also has the Unauthorized Disclosure podcast that's been going for quite some time. And the newer one called Left Bitches Who Are Right. And uh, as a journalist and just uh, someone very knowledgeable on what's going on in the world. Very good perspective. We get into talking about COVID existence, Lebanon, where she uh, is living currently. Sanctions in general. Deplatforming on social media doing uh, more political stuff on TikTok, which is not always a medium you think about that. And uh, just a bunch of other stuff. She uh, really knows the time. It's a good conversation. Fortunately, she didn't really want to give us a music mix. <laughs> she said it would be incriminating. But we talk a little bit about music, mostly about politics. Hope you enjoy. Ronnie Akalik on Stark Reality. Yeah, no, I, I, I sometimes take my uh, second shot of coffee at some point in the day, too. It's needed. You only drink two cups a day? No, I said I take my second shot. Oh. Uh, I've been drinking oh. more coffee. I don't know this, you know, because I don't, I don't necessarily want to slip into just being bored and doing yeah, other stupid things. Like so I've kind of centered on coffee. It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah. It's like you need something. It gives you, it makes you feel a little bit alive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Well, well, part of you also feels dead inside, so yeah, <laughs> I'm the only one. <laughs> no, it's, it's 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 a weird existence. It's definitely it is. It's a weird existence. It is. It's actually it's actually funny because like I spent a lot of last year, um, it with my family in Northern Virginia. So like I have a lot of sisters and they have nephews and nieces. So I really didn't like feel the impact of like the lockdown anywhere that badly because I was still surrounded by my family. But now that I'm back in Lebanon, which is where I am now, like it's just I like my my boyfriend travels, so I've had like a couple weeks here and there where I'm just alone and I'm like how are people doing this? Yeah. <laughs> like cuz Lebanon's in lockdown right now cuz the numbers here are really bad. 
So. Yeah, how has uh, Lebanon uh, handled the crisis overall compared to other I countries? mean, Lebanon has like already had an economic crisis before this, so it's just been like compounded by the COVID crisis because these lockdowns require you to like shut everything. Um, and so in the U.S., it's really bad for the economy to shut things, but you can imagine in a poorer country that doesn't like have the funds to like bail anyone out, including even corporations. Um, it's like much, much worse because there's like all this inflation taking place and the currency is being devalued. And this is just like making it worse. But somehow the country is functioning still. So we'll see how long that lasts. Yeah, you were, <laughs> I'm, always, you were actually, I'm always kind of surprised by that. You were actually there during the whole port blast, which is insane. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The port thing was crazy because, um, you know, Lebanon is like this small country that's surrounded, you know, it's, it's borders Israel on, uh, on one side, it borders Syria on the other. It can't really trade with Israel. It can't trade at all with Israel because they're official enemies for good reason. Um, and it can't really trade like it used to with Syria because of these like insane U.S. sanctions on Syria that punish even neighboring states or any companies in neighboring states can be punished, punished for doing uh, business with Syria now, which yeah, is they, crazy uh, if the, you actually think the about Caesar, that. The Caesar sanctions, right? Right. Which was yeah, kind of on top actually, of like, other sanctions from before even, right? Right, right. But other sanctions, there was like, they didn't really necessarily, uh, you know, impact Iraqi companies, for example, or like Lebanese companies, it would be like if a country came and, you know, threatened American companies for doing business with Canada or something like it's really outrageous, actually, for a country on the other side of the world. Yeah. To well, go ahead. Sorry. Get in the way of to, to get in the way like that, like to, to literally, um, you know, uh, punitively, like put in place these financial sanctions on anyone who does business with its neighbor in the Middle East. Like it's outrageous, actually. But that's imperialism for you. Yeah. But so basically, the, the what I'm getting at with that is that you know Lebanon was really dependent on its port. Um, so that blast like really uh, screwed the country even more than it already is with the current economic collapse because it basically uh, destroyed its only method of bringing imports into a country that's completely dependent on them. So. Uh, it's been a struggle for a lot of people since then. And then like everything, I mean, this year, the 2020 was just like a bad year for the world. It was a really bad year for Lebanon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know I, I saw that you were on a, a podcast. I think it was like a Massachusetts, like peace now type of podcast, but I think you were talking to someone who teaches middle East studies and you were talking about that very thing about, you know, in terms of like, why can't it trade with Syria or, or these other countries? And uh, it just seems uh, like you said, imperialism, how it works, sort of kind of keeps things, keeps all these countries sort of like from able to work together, much like they do in Central and South America, too. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's like the intended purpose is to really like uh, is to really like dismember the region. Uh, into like the the people that can function normally because they do what the U.S. wants versus the people that need to be punished because they're not doing what the U.S. wants. That's ultimately what it comes down to. So like all of these Gulf countries that are America's client states, countries like, you know, like Israel, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, you know, they get to be normal countries. They get perks. And then countries that refuse to submit to American uh, interests you know, are just severely punished, are targeted with these regime change wars, are targeted with financial penalties 
that make their economies crash um, and really just cause this like insane level of suffering that Americans have no idea is even taking place. Yeah, you've done one of the things I really uh, like about what you do is that, you know, especially in some of your videos and even extending into TikTok, you kind of break this stuff down into, uh, you know, terms for people to understand. Because I still think on a certain level, when people hear sanctions, they don't equate it with war or murder or whatever. But it really is. I mean, it's just straight up economic gangsterism. Absolutely. And I mean, that's the thing about the word sanctions, right? It's like this kind of like it has no emotion to it. It doesn't really make you feel anything. It's just this like financial word. Um, and but in reality, like when you see the impact on the ground, I mean, I'll put it this way. Um, you know, Syria had a war, a very violent war. There's still like a small parts of the country where they're still fighting, but it's like pretty much died down. And there's not a hot war like there was five or six years ago. But that war went on for like seven years and it was brutal on all sides. Um, that said, you know, when I talk to people who are still in Syria, they will tell you that the war they went through for the past seven years, as terrible for the past decade, as terrible as it was, doesn't come close to the kind of suffering that they're experiencing because of the sanctions. Because what sanctions do is they just, they destroy your economy. They devalue your currency. So today I make a thousand dollars a month because my currency in the country becomes devalued because of these sanctions in a week. So my, my salary, which is still the same amount technically is now like worth half of what it was last week. That's what sanctions do. You get a salary cut without actually getting a salary cut. Um, you like, you know, it, it's impossible to like really, uh, can think about the future. So people who have means leave. Um, you know, what are you going to do in a country that's just, that's already destroyed by war and now has no economic viability? You leave if you're a professional, if you're a doctor, if you're a lawyer, if you're an engineer, you leave. So you have this like brain drain that the war already, you know, caused, but it gets even worse because you, you're now losing doctors, right? Because they can't get paid at hospitals because hospitals can't get, you know, medicines. They can't get, um, you know, they can't get replacement parts for the dialysis machines. They can't get the right cancer treatment, uh, equipment and, and, and medications. So like hospitals are suffering. you also can't get paid because all of this is because of sanctions. So you leave. So it's like you lose the people you need to make a country function and make it healthy. So there's like so many aspects that they sanctions people don't think about. In the case of Syria, fuel, you know, is even sanctioned. So Syrians have a fuel shortage. They have a, they live in the Middle East. It's the most oil-rich region in the world. And they have a fuel shortage. Um, and, and the same, and I think, with of, Venezuela, too, because they, right. you know, the way that they are able to, that they have, like, I guess, a heavy crude. So they're not able to kind of right. process it. And, like, and I was going to mention, too, like, even parts for dialysis machines. So then people with kidney issues die needlessly because they can't get a mm -hmm. part. It's, I don't know. It's just really sick. It's sociopathic. It really, it is. And it's like, we, and it's not the first time. This is, this is like a tool of empire. It happened, you know, we did it to Iraq in the nineties and like softened that country up for the invasion that came in 2003. And I mean, those sanctions in the nineties destroyed Iraq from the inside out. You had a country with one of the, the, the I think it had the highest literacy rate for women in the middle East in Iraq before uh, the 90s. 
And afterwards, I mean, you had, you know, within the course of 10 years, one of the most educated populations in the Middle East became the least educated. Um, I mean, the sanctions destroy so much. People can't even imagine. Uh, so, yeah, it is like it's a form of war that doesn't get classified as such. And it does in many ways a, a kind of damage that for a lot of people can be worse than war. Because, you know, when we think of wars, like if you haven't been to a war zone, you think of a war as like the whole country is just engulfed in a fire. But really, like war is more um, isolated. What I mean by that is it's like it's like it's happening in this neighborhood or that neighborhood or this city or that city. It's not the whole country. It's not even the entire city. Sometimes it really is just isolated to like a few neighborhoods. Whereas, you know, uh, the economic warfare of sanctions <laughs> attacks the entire country. So more people feel it. Yeah. And I'm obviously that famous uh, Madeleine Albright, Albright quote about, uh, you know, that she thinks it was worth it, that half a million Iraqi children died. And I think, you know, something that, of course, you've brought up, too, is the arrogance of the West. Like, imagine if another country did that to America, you know? Right. It would, it would be <laughs> the like, U.S. would, like, nuke it. Exactly. The U.S. would nuke the country. And it, it's just <laughs> the, the arrogance of empire is something that just gets me just so angry. Then you know that I hear you. That I feel you. Can't see it. It just like <laughs> drives me crazy. But of course, a lot of that is also just how it's spun in media, mainstream media, corporate media. Right, right. It's spun as like, uh, I mean, man, like it, it's spun as as like the the most disgusting thing I think about the way that war gets covered is like as we're just completely destroying these places, it's spun as we're just there to help. <laughs> Like, yeah, it's and really people unreal. really believe it. Yeah, that's the <laughs> like, thing that's it's so disgusting that you still like see things like the New York Times or even NPR. I've gotten into random, you know, whatever discussions, arguments with people that still feel like it's progressive or left leaning, you know, and it's like, do you look at the guests they have on? Do you look at how they cover these situations? I mean, even, no, it's even, just like, even it's, democracy it's just now fashion. is it's kind like of, just... you know, falling off it... with Syria and certain <laughs> things, you know. I mean, it's just like with NPR, it's like, it's like, what are you comparing it to? It's like people, you know, if you're comparing it to Fox News or like even CNN, it's, it's not like horrible, but it's still so horrible. And having been like, having lived in, in this region in the Middle East for like the last four, four years now, um, I've been around my share of Western correspondents and I don't want to paint them all with the same brush. Um, or like generalize too much because there's some really good ones, but there's a lot of really shitty ones who have like terrible politics and just project their beliefs into their reporting. Um, they also like with, you know, they don't oftentimes they don't speak the language. I mean, it's so funny if you, well, meet, you did uh, one of those correspondents, you did one of those parody videos that was absolutely hilarious. That was like par yeah. parodying <laughs> those types of people, right? Where, with the you know yeah, the handler exactly. handles everything and they're like at the mm -hmm. cafe getting coffee exactly it's and they don't ridiculous. speak the language and, and and what's so funny to me about that is like if you look at any foreign correspondent from a foreign outlet uh operating in the united states they will always speak english they'll always be fluent in english because why would you send somebody to cover a country where they can't communicate or like <laughs> or like uh where they can't you know uh consume the local media you know what I mean? Like, because that's that not their job. Their job right. is to exactly. you know, sell something. 
Yeah, no, I get also, it. Also, like... <laughs> yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just saying, like, the West well, is so arrogant. It's so fucking arrogant. It's ridiculous, you know? Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. And it's like, and it's like the other thing, too, about these correspondents when they're here is they, um, because they don't speak the language, they literally, like, only interact with people who can speak English fluently and communicate with them. And usually people who can speak English fluently are people who are of a certain class, um and of a certain background and of a certain belief system because that comes with that class. So they're literally like giving you, um, they're painting you a picture of these countries that's coming from the perspective of people who are like, who have like an American mentality basically. So you don't actually get a proper representation of, which I mean, I don't need to tell you that, but it's just like, it's funny when you think about that because it's just like that would never fly in the U.S. We would laugh at any outlet that would come to the U.S. and try to cover, for example, like Black Lives Matter protests without speaking English. Like, I mean, if you flipped a lot like, of this stuff, yeah. If you flipped a lot of this stuff in reverse, I mean, I think it just really shows just how ludicrous it is. But because you know it's not in reverse, it's always one-sided, and then it's carried by these kind of like stalwart media things like the New York Times. It it gets respect you know even though they're quoting right. adrian zentz or something for as as, <laughs> as a source on china it just it seems utterly utterly ridiculous you know it, it exactly which is what i try to do i guess is what you were alluding to in some of my more like comedic videos is just try to like show people how absurd it is because sometimes you really do need to think about it and i understand why because like i grew up in the u.s i'm american culturally and I, even me, I have to like remind myself sometimes how crazy it is, like what I'm seeing, because as an American, you just have this like indoctrinated arrogance to just assume that like, it's okay the way we do things. Like, it's totally fine. There's nothing crazy about it. You don't really realize it's crazy until you look at it from like an alien perspective, basically. Yeah. And if you kind of, and I think that sort of like sort of built-in thing where it's like, you know, almost, I've you know, like how people kind of like, you know, from a mainstream viewpoint, look at Vietnam, like, oh, it was a mistake. Like you can, it, you can admit that America isn't perfect, that we made mistakes, but it's like, no, it's actually a lot worse than that. It's so much worse exactly. than that. You know, a lot of this stuff is really by design. Like I think you mentioned like with Syria, it's, you know, you're just you're you're causing a, a country to be depopulated you know Basically. much less all the other yeah. stuff you know so like de-developing you're just like de-developing de these countries essentially and all under the guise of like we're just trying to help the people and it's that's what i mean i think that's what really frustrates me about it the most is like there really is this savior complex by people who are destroying and it's like it's like worse than your common bully it's, because it's, like it's, most bullies kind of know they're assholes <laughs> Right, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> right. Well, there, there, Whereas, there's like, like an arrogance, like we're on the side of the good. Cause I, I think, yeah, I think you mentioned that in another uh, interview is that, you know, you've, you've been around some of these reporters and then they write their story and you're like, yo, we were at the same place. How the fuck are you <laughs> writing that? It's just crazy. Like weren't we at that the same place, happened. but then that's gotta be like, again, this like, um, uh, you know, team America or, you know, Red Dawn, you know, like you grow up with these yeah. movies, right? And then you just still believe it no matter what, no matter what the facts in the ground are. You I still think, think America are the good guys. It's like, what the fuck is wrong with you people? 
I think one of the craziest things, I think one of the craziest things like you just reminded me of was being in Damascus with a bunch of Western correspondents in like the government held area of Damascus, you know, where the evil government resides um, that, you know, America wants to overthrow. And, uh, and like Damascus has a huge bar scene. Like it's like got a, a party scene in like the old city. It's like really nice and fun. And it's like, there's like a lot of like, you know, uh, it's just like cool style. It's like this, this ancient old city turned into like a, a, a like line of bars, right? It's like known for that. And they love the Western correspondents love this area, of course, cause they're all like alcoholics. And, um, the craziest thing to me was like being with these Western correspondents who are just like drinking their beers and their wines and their cocktails and like, you know, like, you know, hitting on all the girls, you know, with their eyes, but also talking about how like the people on the other side would be better for Damascus than the current regime. And the people on the other side were out, were like a bunch of jihadists. Who, the, if they the, weren't the, in charge, the, the free Syrian like, army, <laughs> the free Syrian, I'm like you motherfuckers, you motherfucker fuckers would not be able to drink oh. your beer at your favorite pub in Damascus. If Jaysh al Islam was in charge, like go fuck yourselves. At least, at least like be honest with yourselves enough to know that rather than sit here and like, and like enjoy this place and the beauty of its culture. And I mean, Syria is a really beautiful place because it's so old. Like historically, it's an amazing place to visit. Um, there's just like so many, you know, ancient mosques and churches and roads and like neighborhoods uh, that are so beautiful. And uh, like just to like be there and to, and to enjoy that and to be able to consume that and take it in without recognizing the irony of the fact of like who you want to take over would literally destroy that. And I mean, for you, if you're a Western correspondent, like you're just coming in, you just, you know, you just came in for a couple days. You can leave when it goes to shit, but like the locals can't. So there's more of that arrogance, I suppose, is like, is like, we want to impose something worse on you because it's good for America, but we also aren't going to stick around to watch it. We'll just have fond memories of our time at the pub. That sounds, like it's that just, it's really very gross. American. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, it does, right? It does. It's as American as it Unfortunately, <laughs> you, you sound like an Assadist, quote unquote. Yes. Well, that's what they say. It's, it's ama- funny it's too, because ama- like. That the Syrian, it's like, I think, is there any place that has just had more disinformation than Syria? And then again, when people like yourself are like, hey, maybe we shouldn't invade Syria because look at Libya. And then even if you're not necessarily a fan <laughs> of the Assad regime or whatever you know just like all the just you know just these players that just really really try to like you know i don't know smear smear like the oz qataris or whatever these just awful people i mean they know what they're i think they know what they're doing they're like they're you know they're pushing a propaganda line they have an agenda um i think you know people are of course uh motivated for different reasons Um, but when it comes to Syria, you know, I don't think that anybody actually likes the Assad regime. I mean, Syria's it's a fucked up place. Like no one's denying that. I've never denied it. Um, I've always tried to be, it doesn't matter how nuanced you are about it. It doesn't matter if you go visit, it doesn't matter who you talk to. Even if you talk to pro-opposition people, it doesn't matter. If you don't have the talking points of the U S state department, you are viciously smeared as a dictator loving Assadist. And there's no good, I mean, there's no getting away from it. Like that's just the way it is. And there's a reason for that. It's to literally shut down 
any information or any debate that offers a more complex view of what's happening because what was happening in Syria was really complicated. Um, and I don't claim to know everything, but I do know a lot more than people who haven't been there. Um, and like, I, I just, and I, this is what happens with every country. You know, you ask if Syria is like the most, you know, d- it, when it comes to disinformation, if Syria is like the, you know, would rank the highest. I'm not sure because I thought so when it was happening. Um, I thought so in terms of like the level of propaganda that went into it, the amount of like Hollywood films that are being made and have been made about it. Like the never number of Netflix documentaries. Like, yeah. Didn't, uh, didn't the white helmets, didn't it win an Oscar? I think it almost yeah. did, but like it, 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 got, it, it got nominated. So you're just talking. I don't about remember. Like straight, I don't think it won. Yeah. But it's just like straight up propaganda documentary. You know, it's funny. It's I just heard, like I have insane, a friend who works. Insane. I have a friend who works at her worked at the time at Al Jazeera who uh, told me because, you know, Qatar was very close to a lot of these uh, rebel groups um, and they like especially the white helmets. Um well, they were just close to rebel groups because they could, like, access opposition areas because Qatar is, like, run by the Muslim Brotherhood, basically. Uh, so anyways, regardless, Al Jazeera is, you know, based out of Doha. It's funded by the countries. Um, and they a lot of the footage that was in the White Helmets documentary went through Al Jazeera first. And my friend told me, who worked there at the time, that there was all this drama because they had to, like, the producers, like the producers at Al Jazeera were really frustrated because they had to spend a significant amount of time editing out all the guns and like ISIS and Al Qaeda flags <laughs> from the footage they had to then give to Netflix. And, um, you, and, you, and I know like either you or Max or other people had found like, you know, footage of the white helmets, you know, basically well, yeah, celebrate with, with ISIS yeah. people. Like it, it is, you know, being, you know, you can cleaning find up it. after exit, you know, exactly. cleaning up after execution, celebrating the execution. Yeah. Those things were all online for everyone to see, but it's like Syria became this thing where no matter what evidence you provided, it's like, you had to believe this one thing. It's like nothing. It is like nothing I've ever seen. I think, and I think Syria definitely, uh, presents the future of warfare in terms of the amount that goes into like propagandizing. And I think that that, that, that kind of template is going to be used and is already kind of being used in other places. Like you see it with China now, right? You mentioned Adrian Zenz. I mean, you know, even if there's something shady going on with Xinjiang, like even if there's, even if China is doing something bad, like, the evidence we're being provided with so far is by some right wing, like Christian zealot in Germany (laughs) who is like, uh, you know, we're just supposed to believe what he says. And he's saying these really sensational things about like organ harvesting and like a Holocaust. And it just reminds me of the kind of stuff you heard about Syria with like no proof behind it, just like really vague claims. And we're just supposed to believe like state department funded things. And if you say it enough times, um, it becomes true. And then you have this like network of echo, this like echo chamber echo network chamber. of, chamber. of yep. regime change activists, of think tankers, uh, of media people who are like, I'm sure they have like little DM groups together who take pleasure in and spend a significant amount of time in attacking and smearing anybody who questions what we're being told, even if it's just like, you know, I just, I'm looking for evidence. You become a genocide apologist. 
Um, and so I think that the Syria stuff it is one of the, I mean, definitely like some of the highest amount of disinformation we've probably seen from any conflict. But also I think the bigger danger of it is how it really was like this template for how to conduct this kind of information warfare in the future. Yeah, and then also obviously just continues because then if you are trying to actually put like, you know, something that counters that narrative, then you may not even be online anymore. So we're seeing that more and more people getting deplatformed or even their channels demonetized. Uh, you know, I know that you had uh, Carrie Ann Mendoza on uh, unauthorized disclosure because she at one point was uh, booted off Twitter a few times. And she kind of explained that whole process about how people basically, you know, this is more like the UK, the sort of fake anti-Semitism thing to kind of like purge labor of its left and like how basically people will just come up with false claims and get enough people to claim it so that even if you diss the report and it's proven that it's false they just keep doing it and then it's sort of like in sort of twitter system like well you've been accused of this before even though every time it's complete bullshit you know yeah it doesn't matter it's like definitely i mean that's the future too is just like erasing people who have who are challenging these state department mainstream pro-war narratives um and you've got liberals it's, it's funny you have liberals who are the ones championing championing this uh, in the name of fighting fascists in the far right. Uh, but at the end of the day, we all know it's the left that's going to be targeted. The left has already been targeted. Um, and like moving forward, I'm just, I'm, it's, I'm still pretty stunned by how many people on the left cheered, you know, have cheered Alex Jones being banned, Trump being banned. And I think it probably does come down to, they really believe that like by removing people like Alex Jones and Trump, that's somehow going to lessen fascism in America, but it's not. Like, that's not, they're not the reason that we have, you know, these problems. <laughs> um, and we, that's like a different I issue to go into. But ultimately, also, like, you have to look at who's in control of power. And it's not like the left's in control of power. If the left was control in the control of power, I might have a different opinion on this topic. Um, but it's not. You have a corporate, like, monopolistic structure of tech companies aligned with U.S. government interests uh, and so that's ultimately going to come down to shutting down the left. It's right. like as simple as that. Yeah. I mean, you have people like the Atlantic Council that are advising. So then in the end, it's like, yeah, of course, they're going to go with the government. And, you know, and then you you have I know you had also had Richard Paz of a Venezuelan analysis. That's a great site. And they've been like, you know, they're still on, but they've been booted off Twitter a number of times, suspended. And it's like, oh, we made a mistake for the fifth time in a row. <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. Like, just, <laughs> I mean, it's just like the whole thing, like community standards, terms of service. It, it almost seems like, you know, something like disturbing the peace. Like they literally can arrest you for any reason and just make it's it It's for later. like thought it's, it's crimes, for bullshit. having the wrong thoughts, for having the wrong bullshit. ideas. Yeah. For having the wrong ideas. But it's like, it's not arresting you, right? It's just like shutting down your ability to communicate. And that's the problem with these tech giants. It ultimately becomes down to a problem with capitalism is you have these monopolies, these, these like oligarchs, these tech oligarchs controlling what should be public platforms, not, you know, they shouldn't like, it's like, this is the way we communicate in 2021 is Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And they control all of that. And, and, you know, they are, of course, you know, like you mentioned the Atlantic council, they're being 
advised by the Atlantic Council and other organizations like it that receive funding from the U.S. State Department, along with like all of the weapons companies you can think of, as well as the pharmaceutical industry, as well as, you know, the tech industry. So but the, but the point is, is like it actually is like a, 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 this loophole for the U.S. government because, you know, free speech is the U.S. government isn't supposed to infringe on your right to free speech. There's nothing about corporations, though. And so that's the argument that gets used is, well, these are private platforms. They can do whatever they want. But if they're being advised by the U.S. government, by U.S. government funded think tanks, then you have a middleman. You have like a loophole middleman that's working on behalf of the U.S. government to shut down uh, speech that is politically opposed to U.S. government interests. And that's a huge problem on top of the whole idea of the fact that these are, you know, these uh, what should be like public forums are, are privatized as they are. Yeah, because I think at, at one point uh, the company that you're working for now was suing Facebook because you guys were getting labeled as, quote-unquote, Russian state media, correct? Right, yeah. So we're, we are still involved in a lawsuit with Facebook, and we're a really tiny company. Uh, we have, like, a loose affiliation with RT that doesn't really exist anymore, but it doesn't, it doesn't even matter. It's just we got on some list, and so we're labeled. But that said, like, I don't even think it's right to be labeling RT the way they have, like Russia's state-controlled media. I mean, do they label um, the first BBC, of all, you know? Right. It's a double standard. They're not labeling other, the only out, like, the only social media company that's come close to, like, labeling those kinds of outlets from the West is YouTube. But then they do it in this really, like, messed up way where RT is Russia's state-controlled media, uh, or is it, or they'll say, like, RT is, like, controlled in whole or in part or funded in whole or in part by the, you know, by Russia. Uh, but then for the BBC, it'll be like the BBC is funded by the British public broadcasting. Like, it'll be like something, you know, that doesn't sound as like scary. You know what I mean? So it's just a warning label. They're adding a warning label to media from countries that Amer that are American adversaries only uh, in the case of Twitter and Facebook. And that's what it is. It's a warning label meant to scare people off. So no matter what you're talking about, you know, which, you know, in my case, I don't even talk about Russia that much because it's like I'm more, you know, I talk about American politics. Um, but that said, I could be talking about like Medicare for all. And you have a warning label on my video that says Russia state controlled media. So I don't know if it, like the intention is to make people think that like the Russians want to give you Medicare for all. Well, the <laughs> Russians are the ones that are stoking the racial tensions in the U.S. It has nothing right, to do with right. the cops killing how many thousands of people exactly a year. no it's it's i mean I, I yeah i don't know as an adult you know and i know that i was uh listening to some some of like you know i heard you have you have like a lot going on you have left bitches who are right mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then you have that's a, right an, unauthorized disclosure which has been running for a while now right like seven years yeah or... like like a long time yeah me and kevin have been doing it for i don't even remember when we started but it's been definitely like a significant amount of time yeah and then you have your <laughs> the videos and then you've also been doing stuff on tiktok which i think is is good i mean obviously, which is also so, for yeah no i just think it's, it's funny because obviously you know for people like you know whatever i'm i'm a pro you know in my 40s or whatever it's like you're not really thinking about that so much in terms of like activism or, or checking it out but of course why not you know it's like if it's out well, there why not flip it why not flip it yeah it, exactly it reaches a younger audience and in a way like because of all the like nasty labeling from twitter and facebook at this point it's kind of one of the only arenas where like 
it's like I don't get everything I do labeled Russia state controlled. Um, but yeah, I mean, also it's just a new, pl- it's a different platform to grow that a lot of people are on. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like, why not? And I think also like TikTok has just kind of become bigger in like the lockdown era. Cause you're just always at home, like, <laughs> like all the time. Yeah. It's funny. My, um, my, my wife watches a lot of like reels that, you know, of course go into TikTok and it, it almost becomes sometimes like a bad wedding cause they keep using the same songs over and over. But I know that you flipped that, uh, you know, what is it, the Gnarls Barkley thing or something, but it was like, I remember when, I remember, I remember, and it was all the uh, oh, states, yeah, it was yeah, all yeah, the states, was, like, it was all the countries that the U.S. <laughs> has invaded, and I'm like, this is hilarious, because this is actually <laughs> kind of sneaking in things where people are, like, watching some butane thing or a cat jumping <laughs> off something, and all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, we invaded, like, 80 countries in the last 100 years, remember that shit? <laughs> you dipshits? You know, but it's, it's good, it's good, useful. slip it in, you know? It's like... It's and proper. it's how all the kids consume media now. It's like really the, the sad thing is like uh, like a thirty second video on TikTok will get more views than um than a like nine minute like in depth segment. It's good, which makes me really sad. But it's also just different audiences. Uh, and also like with the TikTok, I've been I've been moving. I've been like traveling, and I moved apartments, so like my studio isn't properly set up. So it's just like an easier way to make content. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely interesting. And what I thought was funny too, was how a few months ago, like the Trump administration went out of their way to try and steal TikTok from like this Chinese. Oh yeah, company. that's right. That's right. They were again, <laughs> more like, gangsterism. If there's going to be a gangsterism. social media outlet that's successful, it's going to be American, whether they like it or not. America. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So ridiculous. Yeah. Cause uh, yeah, that was another thing too. It's uh just like the and then like you know out of Russiagate you know and all that bullshit and now we kind of just have segued into China now and everything you know everything China does is evil including like you right. know it's insidious that they're 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 sharing the you know the vaccination and and mass it's it's really just a way for them to curry favor it's like maybe they actually give a shit about the world unlike the US you know well, you know what's interesting is like it's been so weird to watch how almost overnight um US officials went from terrorism, Islamic terrorism, Islamic terrorism, ISIS, al-Qaeda, the war on terror to China, intellectual property rights. They're stealing them. China, 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 the Uyghurs, China. Well, now like, we're saving Muslims. <laughs> right, right, right. They went from, I cannot, we went from persecuting I them how, to saving them. Exactly. How it's it's gullible amazing. Gullible are people? How fucking gullible are people? But they but are it's, it's because actually, I've seen it on my Facebook. Along. You know? I know. It's crazy. Yeah. It's crazy. They just follow along. And with the China stuff, too, it's like, like I, I'm, I'm also like wondering how the fear factor even works here because with like Islamic terrorism because of 9 11, like they were really able to do a good job of like invoking that to strike fear in people's hearts for like 20 years. It worked because of 9-11 and because of just like other, you know, attacks, uh, like the Charlie Hebdo attack, like all these attacks, ISIS and Al-Qaeda would carry out these oh, like yeah, really Charlie sensational, exactly. you know, acts of brutality. But with China, it's like, they're like China stealing our intellectual property. I'm like, does that really strike fear into anybody's hearts? Like, is anybody like, like staying up at night, like scared about China stealing Microsoft? Not that it's even happening, but about China stealing Microsoft's ideas. You know what I mean? Um, I just don't think that the China stuff, 
is going to work as well on the American public. I mean, the most, the closest they got to really, you know, like ramping up the anti-China sentiment was with COVID and like blaming China for COVID. Um, but like that only works for so long. And with Russia, it's different because there's this history with like, you know, the Cold War um, that like really goes deep into the heart of America. And also the last four years of Russia hysteria and convincing Americans that Russia got Trump elected and whatever. So, but with China, like, I'm like, I'm just kind of like wondering what creative stuff they're going to come up with because so far I feel like the average American doesn't really give a shit about China. And I don't, and I think the average American also didn't really give a shit about Russia, you know, cause Russia's not like communist anymore. So it's like, what is there to, to fear monger about other than just like Putin is mean, you know what I mean? Well, but um, I, I think, I think, you know, that, you know, just like you said, the echo chamber, it, it just really hammers it over and over and over again until people start believing it, which is why, you know, independent media and anti-imperialist media is so important because, you know, otherwise, you know, you're, as I've said many times, like Russiagate is brain rot. It will just rot your brain. If you just take all this right. stuff at face value, you just start sounding like a complete idiot. And I think a lot of the stuff, the same thing with China, that it's like, you know, they're killing all these Uyghur Muslims. Like, first of all, when has the U.S. ever cared about Muslims ever? You know, it's like, think right. about it, it just seems like it just seems like really basic con shit. Like they're conning you like, you know, they're lying. You know, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's I mean, I think people that's the thing, too, is like I think people really have a sense that they're being lied to um, across America, uh, except for liberals. Liberals are like our guys now in charge. We're not being lied to anymore. Everything's fine. But a significant portion of Americans understand to some degree that like society around them is kind of crumbling and the people in charge are not telling them the truth. But the problem is, is like the people who have the biggest platforms to speak to those anxieties are crazy right wingers. They have the biggest platforms. Like I'm not just talking about Fox News, which plays a huge role. But also, like, just, you know, this One America News Network, Newsmax. But I'm also talking about, like, YouTube, YouTube posts, like the right-wing ones. Um, there's just this entire media, like, ecosystem for the right, shock jocks, um, that, you know, like, podcast personalities that go so deep. And then the and it's because they they are funded. They have great funding. It's because corporations, rich people, oligarchs fund that shit because it behooves them. And then they, you know, explain, you know, they speak to these people's anxieties with like crazy conspiracies and like, you know, hatred and you know, fascistic ideas and like there's a pedophile ring that Trump is gonna, you know, like all the QAnon shit. Yeah, that QAnon. does and all of it, all of it, all of it's like some of it's based in some semblance of reality. Like, like they can pick on these things. Like there are these like billionaire pedophiles like Jeffrey Epstein who who like you know passed their little sex trafficked girls around to like all these elites. That did happen. But then like it gets, you know, it gets like twisted into this QAnon stuff where there's like children being held hostage in central park underground and Hillary Clinton is like in charge of it, like, you know, crazy shit. But, and then there's the left and the left is just so weak and so fractured and so underfunded and we can't compete. Like we can't compete. We're too busy, like competing with each other because like no one agrees with each other because some people are really stupid and should be yelled at. But well, like, I think, I think, no, but, well, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. 
No, I was I was being a little I don't really no, no. but like but my but my point is is like it's just it's it's a scary moment in the sense that like there is a lot of potential for left wing ideas to catch on because of how miserable people are uh, and how like shitty capitalism is. But my fear is that um, it's actually the right that's gonna get stronger uh, because the left is so weak. I mean, the right gets strong when the left is so weak. And part of the reason the left is so weak is because of the Democratic Party constantly kneecapping it and like suppressing it. And you know, like trying to get the left to buy into the idea that they can change things through the Democratic Party, which just like kills any actual good left momentum. And it's done that for the last 30 or 40 years. So anyways, now I'm just rambling. No, but, like, no, not that's at all. That you're actually at. making a lot of sense. I mean, it's the concept where, you know, of course, a lot of quote unquote centrists were talking about horseshoe theory that, you know, the far left and the far right are aligned you know and center is the way but it really plays out in in the real world in my opinion with fishhook theory that basically the center which really is and the far right are much more aligned to make sure that no real left and real progressive because even like you know someone like bernie sanders who you know i would have voted for him but in the end he's a latent imperialist even if he is yes he's an imperialist who shuffles his feet and is like oh i guess i will uh drone bomb these people or whatever like that's what would happen if he was president but you know we would have better social programs but he's not even that left he's definitely not anti-imperialist but even that is still too far for these people they'll never even right. allow that so much left someone who's like anti-imperialist like I, I just feel like you can't even be a politician in america if you're if you're not buying into that system like even like people like aoc have a generally terrible foreign policy record you know right i mean that's why these people are allowed to exist within the democratic party framework even though even though the democratic party constantly shits on them um they're allowed to exist because they really don't challenge it that much they don't challenge the most important stuff and the most important stuff i'm not saying medicare for all isn't important it's extremely important but the most important stuff is recognizing like imperialism and how that really is like the most pure form of capitalism and until you engage with that honestly and stop paying lip service to it you really can't do much to change things inside america except maybe like a couple small things here and there. And then of course, the other reason that they're accepted by the democratic party, even if again, they shit on them all the time is because they're unwilling to actually challenge it from the outside. Like they shut down any conversation about third parties or movements outside of the Democrats um, because they're on team Democrat. And I don't think that that means that they should be like hated on or shunned, or that should really be the main target of the left or anything like that. But I do think that we have to recognize that, like, we shouldn't be building them into these heroes because, like, look what happens when you do. Bernie Sanders had this whole movement behind him. And as soon as he stepped down from the Democratic primary and gave it over to Joe Biden, it collapsed. It, like, evaporated. Yeah, they take take, take all the air out of the balloon. Basically, yeah, just whooshes and everybody out. just lined up. Everybody just lined up behind Biden because they didn't have any other choice. And that's that's the problem. Like, you're never going to get power that way. Like this idea that if we just keep electing squad members, uh, you know, whatever the squad even really means, I'm not entirely sure. 
they don't really have like a coherent ideology, just a couple of policies they kind of seem to all, you know, agree on to some degree, at least some of them. Um, but the idea that if we just keep electing squad members, that'll fix everything is like a dangerous one because it doesn't work. <laughs> like, well, it's, it's just, it's just waiting. Like, are we going to get a $15 minimum wage 15 or 20 years from now? Much less is right. any U.S. politician even going to recognize Palestinians as human beings, which, you know, I mean, it's just like, basic, no, the answer is no. Yeah, it's just like <laughs> basic litmus tests that, you know, and like, you know, I'm whatever from a middle class background, white grew up in America, but it's like, you know, it's like, so I'm not on the same level as someone say living in Gaza or dealing with all that shit, but it's like, why is it take so much to care about people like that or recognize them as human beings? It just seems insanely wrong you know oh yeah totally and it's like also there's an urgency right now that like is particularly important and that's the issue of like planetary destruction like climate change is bad it's you know it's getting worse and we know the timeline right we know the timeline for the, the deadlines for like when we have to have this many carbon emissions and then we have to re reduce it to this much and we're not meeting them because we have this global economic structure called capitalism that is destroying the planet. Like it's destroyed. Actually, no, no, let me be clear. It's not destroying the planet. The planet will actually ultimately be fine. It's destroying the ability for humans to live on the planet. And it's like, and I mean, if you like, it's, we only have, you know, it's not 1950, not that, not that people suffering in 1950 wasn't urgent. I'm just talking as like a species. There's a certain urgency now that like, really, we can't wait 20 years. We can't wait 30 years. We can't wait 40 years to elect enough squad members. If that's even possible to actually change America. Yeah, especially if all those squad members are still voting for the defense budget and the U.S. military is the biggest polluter in the world, you know. But right. I mean, I guess they'll paint a few fighter jets pink and call it a day or whatever. What <laughs> and then that? go attack Bolivia and Ecuador's leftist governments for being extractivist. Yeah, while exactly. refusing to talk about the like U.S. That, that's military. That's the latest thing. Yeah, because uh, yeah, even like uh, they were kind of attacking. Evil Morales, too, like, you know, with the Amazon fires sort of like setting the stage for the coup. And then now in Ecuador. Yeah. Who is I know that uh, Benjamin Norton has a piece on that now on, on the dude who came in second in the Ecuador election. Yeah, so, I actually just I actually just had I interviewed Ben yesterday on Instagram live on Soapbox. and I put it on my YouTube page if people want to go watch that. But I mean, Ben's reporting has been excellent and he's just so good at like condensing it all down in a way where like you listen to him and your mind's kind of blown. Um, but yeah, it's crazy what the U S did in Ecuador. I mean, they're like backing this suit. They're not just, they weren't just backing the right wing candidate who lost really badly because he was, his yeah, party just, uh, is so unpopular. Well, yeah, because Moreno destroyed the country. Right. Right. Cause like they, they experienced neoliberalism under Moreno for the past several years and it's been awful. Um, but uh, they also, they're backing this pseudo left candidate, like, uh, who is his whole thing is that is like, I'm an environmentalist. I'm like an anarcho environmentalist and I oppose the socialists, you know, extractivism, um, you know, meaning like the basically extracting natural resource, using the country's natural resources, nationalizing them to help pay for social services, <laughs> which like, I think that third world country should be able to do. They've earned it after they've had so much stolen from them to enrich the global North. Uh, and they're like countries like Ecuador, it's like 
a drop in the bucket for pollution. It doesn't, it's like, it almost like is meaningless compared to the amount of pollution that like you mentioned the U.S. military puts out. But I think we're going to see more of this kind of thing in the future. We saw it with Bolivia too, Evo Morales, before he was overthrown in the fascist U.S.-backed coup in 2019, was being attacked by like these NGO environmentalist groups uh, for extractivism. Yeah, what is the term um, for that? It's like the, the like ultra left, you know, where it's like, again, it's like these people that, you know, are... T- Again, claiming like they're leftists, but then they're if you're echoing State Department talking points or or you know goals, then how left are you? You know, it's it's just right. It's just like, and again, it's sort of, you know, I think you, you've talked about this. I know Katie Halper's talked about this, like the woke washing, you know, where it's almost like, mm-hmm. oh, we're environmentally sound. It's like greenwashing. Obviously, you've seen this in Israel with a bunch of stuff, pink washing, where they kind of use progressive type of ideas even you're seeing that progressive you know like uh identity politics type language to then sell that even zionism is you know it's it's like woke zionism you know that we have a black person running the cia so it's all good or you know yeah it's just yeah the black we have a woman running the uh like we have a woman running the treasury department it's awesome like don't so why are you so mad about why are you so mad about GameStop? Just look who's running the look who's running the Treasury Department. It's all good. Look, she may have taken huge payments from Wall Street, but it's fine. Well, those <laughs> She's speeches, a woman. those speeches were worth three hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> it's like you yeah, know, it's like it's like when they're paying, when they're paying, isn't like, worth three hundred thousand yeah. dollars. Like are you trying paying, to devalue her as a woman? I know, like you're paying like <laughs> Obama and like Clinton like four hundred thousand dollars to do a speech. It's like, is that what really it's about? You know, it's just like. It's ridiculous. It's it's I don't know this world. It really just like it's too much. it's too fucking much. It's so man. it's so backwards. It's so My ridiculous. favorite is like is like I um you know I I've been like speaking out. I have to say I started out when I came into leftism. The sad thing about America is that a lot of people come into the left through identity politics. Um that's where you learn about social justice. Uh and so I actually came into like when I first started moving to the left, you know, in the when I became, you know, like the beginning of my journalistic career, I was totally one of those people who was just like identity, identity, identity. And it's embarrassing to look back on. But in a way, like I understand why it's such an attractive way to view things. But I also recognize like the there's also like a class dynamic to it because there it's like. I was also born to like, you know, I grew up in like a kind of working class, working poor immigrant family. And so because of like the class dynamic of my lived experience, if you will, um, that's kind of what made me understand that like identity politics is missing a huge component, which is class. But I notice a lot of the people who are into identity politics the most are like upper middle class white people. They love it the most. Upper middle class white people <laughs> love identity politics so much. They're like the most progressive. They're like the most, like they just want to hug people who are not white. And like, and then anybody who isn't white, who like doesn't agree with them is a racist. Like I've been called a racist so many times by upper middle class white people, oftentimes academics, because I don't like identity politics. Like it's, it's the, it's actually the funniest thing to me. There's like, there like, uh, you know, th- there should be like a study done into that because something so, like something about that sociologically is fascinating. 
Well, I think they've kind of turned the original term completely on its head, you know, because it, it you know, it, it was, it was who was it like Barbara Smith, like the Combahee Collective or whatever, and it, and then now, it, yeah. and now it now it instead of like whatever it actually meant, it now, now like, means like be happy Kamala Harris, yeah, Kamala Harris, like. <laughs> <laughs> lying that Look, she was she listening to Tupac and call you know listening to Tupac in 1985 or whatever I forget but I mean that's just that, is that like, what ins- that I forget it was like some bullshit become a cop yeah is that what inspired her to become a cop I don't know like she lied about that she lied about listening to Tupac didn't she she, she lied about like just the you know just even the where she's snickering talking about smoking weed you know and how many times she's thrown she's people like locked in jail up for so that. many fucking people yeah Oh, it's so just awful. twisted, really twisted. So motherfuckers. awful, really twisted motherfuckers. I know. Seriously, I know we can go on and on. But actually, also, you know, I do talk a little bit about music and stuff uh, on this, though. I know you were saying you uh, you're you're just kind of like listen to a lot of pop stuff or when you work out like. Uh... Yeah, it's like embarrassing. <laughs> um, no, because like, I mean, people, there's some people who are like so good about music, like so many of my like peers and colleagues, I just get like, I, I like feel the sense of shame because <laughs> not only am I like not cool when it comes to music, if people heard the music that I do listen to and I really only listen to music when I work out, like I blast it when I work out. Um, so I do CrossFit and it like helps you like, uh, you know, distracts you from the fact that you're doing like ridiculous things. Um, but I listen to like the worst kind of pop music that's like on the radio like it's embarrassing yeah i remember i think like a bunch of you guys uh it was like maybe you and uh mock max and uh, i think it was like drew franklin you guys were all at 18th street lounge i think one of the times i was djing there and then we all yeah. ended up in a cab home and i forgot what was on but it was like some pop song and you were like singing along which i thought was very funny <laughs> Like, and all of you were probably looking at me like, what is wrong with this girl? Because yeah. also Max, Max and Drew, especially Max, Max is like really cool and suave when it comes to music. Like he can talk, he can like tell you the coolest, you know, uh, musicians to ever have lived, tell you their entire biographies and like, you know, and like somehow weave it into social justice. And like, I can't do that. Like, I'm just like Taylor. I know what this Taylor Swift song I listen to when I work out sometimes. It's pretty, it's pretty bad. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> but you were, I do remember you being a very good DJ, but I guess it probably means nothing to you given what I just said. No, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's wild. Well, like well, when you were like in Damascus or even in Lebanon, I mean, I guess now things are on lockdown, but, uh, what are people, what were people listening to out there? Was so like it's actually weird. Or? Like th- there's a very, um, there's a very, I hate what it's called like deep house music. I really don't like it. It's not <laughs> my, I think it's really strange. I, I don't feel the beat. Maybe cause I'm not doing drugs. I don't know. Like I, maybe you have to like do drugs to enjoy it, but it's like really popular. Um, I think it's really popular in European clubs. And as a result, it became really popular in like Syrian um, and Syrian clubs and Lebanon Le- and Beirut clubs. Uh, so I like anytime I've gone out in um, like Lebanon or Syria to like a club type scene, they're always listening to deep house music and they really love it. Like they're super into it. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how popular it is in the U.S., but I remember it being pretty popular in Berlin as well because I lived there for a few months. 
Um, and there's like these really popular DJs, like before the economic collapse in Lebanon, they would always bring these really popular DJs from like Paris or Berlin to come do deep house in Beirut clubs. Like people I'd never heard of, but like my friends and cousins have. Uh, and they're like really excited. They're like, oh my God, this DJ is coming from Berlin. I'm so excited. And I'm like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I, 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 but I, yeah, it's not really, I mean, I, it's not like anything I can, I feel like I can dance to uh, at all. It's like this really, and the people, the way people dance to it is so strange. You know, do you know what I'm talking about? They do this yes. like weird march. Well, I mean, it, <laughs> it depends. I mean, I think there's different scenes. I mean, sometimes I feel like with dance music, I mean, when I first, was into music i was kind of collecting a lot of older music and uh so i didn't really like a lot of dance music and this was around the time that it was starting to pop off in like the, you know whatever mm -hmm. late 80s early 90s so it actually took me a while to kind of come around but sometimes it's just you know hearing the right djs on a system you know i don't know that it's it's kind of like sometimes it's an acquired taste in terms of uh you know, the the more you kind of understand about the culture and the stuff around it, then it kind of like gives you a little bit more of an insight. You know, I mean, it can sound kind of linear, you know, after, you yeah. know, so that's why I think it's like a lot of people that to me, that, it's like a repetitive yes. kind of. Yeah, it, yeah. Can, it can sound linear, but it's also like kind of like, I don't know, understanding different people, how they approach it. You know, I, I it's kind of like one of those things I feel like with music that um, if you keep comparing it to things that you know, then you may not like certain genres. Like, you know, like if you keep, if you listen to death metal and you try to compare it to, say, like funk music or whatever, mm. then you're, you're going to be like, well, this doesn't sound like funk, so I don't like death metal. But it's more like you have to kind, <laughs> of, you have to kind of approach, I think, the genre from the genre standpoint. Like the genre itself yeah. and all the people are into it don't really give a fuck if you're into it or not, you know? <laughs> right, so right, sometimes yeah. it's more about like, again, it doesn't mean you have to like everything, but at least kind of approaching it from knowing the history of the genre, maybe knowing some of the classic tracks, classic DJs, you know, I think it does kind of like help get a little bit of an insight into appreciating it. But if it's like, you know, again, if you kind of like, are not really into it and then you kind of get thrown to it you know to some expensive nightclub with expensive drinks and you're like why am i here and like annoying like obnoxious people <laughs> yeah like you know you know the scene i'm talking about but it's funny it's funny to think about it you may know you make you make raise a lot of really good points it's funny to think about it in retrospect though because like you know you think back to being in a club or at a bar and it's like you like you don't realize how much you took that for granted. I haven't been to a, a bar in a year. Well, like, <laughs> even as people say, you know? like, sometimes you look at movie scenes where it's like a whole crowd of people and you're just like, oh, it's weird. That's not. It gets like normal, so... normalized. Like, as, like, but yeah. I would like also I would gladly if it, if it was possible to do without Go COVID, I would gladly like uh, go to some club and, and watch people dance to deep house music and try to you know, muster up some sort of appreciation for it. I would just be appreciative that I was like around people. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's great you. dancers. Like, I mean, there's a whole, you know, there's a scene that's like house dance, which is, it's kind of sort of like break dancing, but I think it's a little bit more fluid. So, mm. you know, I feel like if you're around those kind of scenes where it's just serious dancers and serious music, it's a little bit more than just like, okay, we have a club, a big system and we're trying to make as much money as money. possible. 
you know yeah. and of course with all those scenes just like any other music scene there's commercial sides of it which is usually the side that people are exposed to when they don't know the music so you know like if i just listen to say commercial hip hop then maybe i'd have less of appreciation for hip hop because i hadn't really like gone through and actually like you know listen to all the stuff in the genre you know I don't know. Yeah. I wonder, I actually am curious, like not to turn it around on you, but I'm going to turn it around on you. Have you like, are you missing DJing? Have you been able to DJ something small? Like what have you been doing to kind of keep up with, with that? Yeah. It's kind of crazy. I mean, we've done, I done, I did some kind of more a few months back was doing some kind of live zoom type events or, you know, um, I actually even DJed a New Year's party that was, and it's obviously like a facsimile of real life, you know, <laughs> it's like yeah, DJing yeah. out to people listening on a computer. It's, it's not quite the same as obviously DJing to a dance floor and people there, but you know, I also don't, I don't know. I look at some of these parties. I mean, I, there was just another like rave busted in Queens. And I, I just think like, what are you guys doing? Like if you're DJing event like that, that could be a potential spreading event. Like how would you live with yourself just to do a party? You know, it just, right. Right. So, I mean, we're all just doing what we should be doing to survive hopefully, which is not trying to kill more people. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. It's like there was like that it wedding. It would be great in, if our government could get on board oh with that, man. but like instead they're just like oh determined man. to see as many Americans die as possible from COVID. We got to get the schools open. It's just like I mean, I really sick society. We we do have to get the schools open, but that requires actually getting rid of the fucking virus. Like, and you're not doing that. Like. It's just so, all of it's so outrageous. All of it's so outrageous. I mean, I think it's a complete send-up indictment of capitalism because yeah. you look at, like, the like you know, you look at a country like Vietnam that we, you know, covered with napalm, and meanwhile, look at the numbers. I mean, it's just crazy. Right. It's like, obviously, there's places that have handled this a lot better than others because they actually give a shit if their people die or not, you know? And it's like... I just think it's kind of twisted even that some of the people, you know, I was calling them like servants of Moloch, you know, <laughs> like like <laughs> devil worshippers are like, we got it. You know, some people are just going to have to die to uh, open That's the economy. Much... And then some of these motherfuckers, like who was that Texas rep that just died? Like people actually like literally tweet like two days before we got to get the schools open. And then like, and no, they you die. just and died die. of COVID. And it's like, oh, OK, OK. All right, then. I mean, what's crazy, too, is like everybody really everybody really convinced themselves that the the reason COVID was so bad in the U.S. was Trump. And there's some truth to that. But the reality is that, like, I don't know how much different it really would have been because we I mean, you're even seeing under Joe Biden. I know he's only been in office a couple of weeks, but like give him time. they're struggling, too. <laughs> it's the problem is our the problem is our system. Oh, like awful. it's our fucking system. We don't have a state. We have like a really powerful country. And we do have like state institutions, but we're so libertarian in the U.S. that like everything's like detached from the other and there's like no real federal government like it's insane but, it's but insane one thing, but one thing that's still uh working is the eviction courts yeah those will always work right because like and that's another thing right is like the things that get prioritized in our country like even now with the vaccines like my family you know i have like i mentioned i have this like really big family um 
they're like all like, like, you know, try the, I mean, the way that they were trying to get my parents vaccinated who are older, it was like, why is it this hard? Like, why is it this hard to get vaccinated where they're just like having to go to these like CVS websites because they heard through word of mouth that they're going to like open up more appointments and they have to be the first ones on, but the appointments get filled up within like five minutes. Like, it's like, a, it's like a mess the same way that testing was a mess back in like March of last year and April of last year yeah, and basically even, all of last year. Yeah. In New, <laughs> in New York, there was like a website where they have the, uh, I think, you know, you can make the appointment, except then they say there's no appointments available. So then you have to keep like these, checking like, back. And it's like, well, this reminds me of trying to get a, an, an unemployment in New York where, you know, I must have called like literally over a thousand times, two thousand times to, to get through to get on unemployment. You know, it's just which, again, it's that's I believe that's really how the system is designed to work. Like, it's just supposed to be there so that you'll get so frustrated so that people will slip through the crack cracks and they won't have to pay as many people because, yeah, who's going to call a thousand or two thousand times? Some people will give up, you know. It's, it's like, yeah, it's like meant to be a messed up bullshit system. Like that doesn't work. Like it's meant to like, in the case of a pandemic, it's like the worst kind of system. And I, I don't think it's obviously, it's not a coincidence that these like rich capitalist countries have had the highest rates of spread and death. And it's because of what they prioritize. And the thing is like, I agree that schools need to be open. I actually think it's super important. Like I've watched my nephews and nieces not be in school and how hard it is for them to do virtual school. But like, if you want schools to be open, you need to actually try to eliminate the virus. And the U.S. like immediately gave up on them. They didn't even try. Like they did not even try. So like they want both. They want it both ways. They want to be able to like have restaurants open and go around and do be normal while everyone's just dying and pretend it's not happening. And of course, there's also like the fact that the people who are dying are people nobody cares about. Like yeah. it's like, you know, it's like, uh, you know, people who are like middle class upper middle class, they can work from home. They have like office jobs and they, they, you know, they can all work remotely. They have internet, but like the grocery store workers, like the, all the food service workers, the, of course there's doctors and nurses who have like been bearing, you know, who've been bearing the brunt of it, which sucks for them. They're probably the only professional class of people that has suffered with COVID. But for the most part, you know, everyone else can just live in a bubble in their like, you know, and their like single family homes in their nice suburbs. And pretend there isn't a, a pandemic happen. I've, I watched it happen. Like the times I go back to the U.S. and I stay with my siblings, like I watch it happen. Their neighborhoods are like completely detached from reality. Yeah. And I, I again, that's kind of the sort of the, the design where it's like the people that those are the people they care about, not the people. I mean, much less people who are in nursing homes or prisons. You know, I mean, I feel like mm -hmm. nursing homes is one of the real scandals of COVID, like just the amount of people that have died in nursing homes. Oh my God. Ridiculous. We just like, we just like let ridiculous. the, we don't care. Like it's a, it's amazing how little the U S just cares about the elderly. Like, I mean, that was actually pretty shocking. We just like sack. We just let old people die. We just decided it's okay for old people to die. Well, what was it That's like Ra said. Rahm Emanuel's brother? He had like some weird version of Logan's Run where it's like, you know, <laughs> if you're over 75, then you've you're lived really your important. life. You're not working anymore. Which, I mean, you when that dude turns 75, I expect him dead. 
You know, live by your own yeah. freaking that rules, guy's, man. That guy's. I mean, that the guy's whole Emmanuel like family. Of, it's he's gonna, like he's gonna be living off of the organs of the young. I forget someone um, on Twitter was like when they were like making him ambassador to China. It's like, why don't you make him the ambassador to the sun? Send that dude to the <laughs> sun with his brother <laughs> on their seventy fifth birthday. See you. These fucking people. It's just too fucking much. You know? They're so awful. There's just too like, many there's shitty such bad people. people. There's just too many they're, shitty people. And they not, des- not they, that, yeah, uh, they deserve uh, to die from COVID. <laughs> like, I feel like if you think that if you think that it's okay to sacrifice people to COVID, then you should be one of the ones that's who are what sacrificed. I'm saying. That's that like, should the, be the, the rule. Servant, the servants of Moloch should be the first to offer themselves. <laughs> you know, if you, if you if your god is the economy, then fucking die for it. You fuck. You know what I mean? But. Anyways, I know we've been <laughs> rapping for a while, but um, I wanted to mention, you know, I actually was trying to remember this article that you had written a while about the Yazidis uh, in, oh, yeah. uh, in Iraq. That's, that was a really, really uh, crazy article and the whole concept of uh, going there and talking to those women. I don't know if you want to just very briefly, like, talk about it or whatever. I, I, and, and it's what's funny is I know it's from, like, a few years back. And I, I was trying to remember even, I didn't remember if it was in Syria or what country, so I was trying to Google around. And that's what's kind of crazy. There's just so many things that happen that just things just get buried because now, okay, mm-hmm. it's like China and something else, but there's just so many crazy things that happen. And I almost feel like there's like a, a movie in there, like a real movie, not like some stupid yeah, white. Yeah, no, I mean, I, like I the, actually like thought the, like, it. I was like. Like, the me- like basically getting abandoned by the Kurds and then the people having a, a hold off so that their relatives can, you know, escape to the mountains. And then they were stuck there and like, it just seemed like no one gave a shit about them. Like they were writing about them in articles, but no one gave a shit about them. So kudos for you for actually going there and interviewing people and stuff because uh that's a really crazy story well thank you and yeah it was a really crazy story and you know something that was interesting about the response to it was i spent there was a couple years where i was going to syria and iraq and doing reporting from there and i saw those two things as basically the same because the thing is, like, for some reason, not for some reason, there is a reason. In the U.S., the way that, that ISIS was presented is that it's this huge threat, but then there was, like, a disconnection. They never explained to you how ISIS rose. And the reason ISIS rose, it's not just because the U.S. invaded and dismantled the Iraqi state in 2003 uh, and created the conditions for the rise of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became ISIS. That, was, of course, is a part of it. But it was also because the U.S. was funding and arming jihadists in Syria to overthrow the Syrian government. And that those weapons uh, and the taking over of territory by the groups in Syria, the collection of jihadist groups in Syria, um, and the ability of those groups to then, after they take over uh, territory, the ability of those groups to then make money by kidnapping Westerners and then ransoming ransoming them— is what gave them the funding and arms they needed, Al Qaeda in Iraq, to basically like basically they like got they they like gathered their arms and weapons and got all and collected all the jihadist groups in Syria, and then from there were able to have the power and the manpower specifically along with the weapons to go and take over large swaths of Iraq, and that was never explained to the American public for obvious reasons. Like, had there been no U.S. Uh, regime change war in Syria, there would have been no ISIS uh, taking over half of Iraq. That wouldn't have happened. Um, 
So, and that's still not talked about today. And there's a reason why the U.S. started to abandon, not entirely, but to some degree, its regime change ambitions in Syria by like 2015, uh, because they recognized that their policy, like they limited the amount of weapons they were giving to Syrian rebels and to whom they were going. And that was done because they knew it was fueling ISIS. And obviously the primary goal became the defeat of ISIS. So the Yazidis would have never been taken as slaves, as sex slaves, and their men killed had it not been for this U.S. policy in Syria. And that's very, very important to understand. But the reason I raised that is because, you know, I I viewed my reporting in Iraq as the same as my reporting in Syria. I was going to report on the destruction that these jihadist groups were causing, whether it was ISIS or some clone of it. Um, Because they all have the same ideology. ISIS just had, you know, different tactics. And that's the reason that they broke from al-Qaeda in Syria. It was a tactical disagreement. Um, But anyway, what happened to Yazidis was, I mean, it was so outrageous because it was completely preventable. But it also speaks to what was happening in the region. Because you had this kind of, and again, Americans don't understand it this way. It hasn't really been, like, explained this way. But after the, uh, the U.S. invaded and overthrew the government in Iraq, it fueled the sectarian Sunni-Shia civil war. But it was really isolated to Iraq. But after 2006, when Hezbollah, which is Shia, a Shia group in Lebanon, uh, expelled Israel from Lebanon and embarrassed Israel and scared the fuck out of the Americans, because uh, it's aligned with Iran and actually put up a challenge to Israel— after that happened in 2006, the Americans like basically went on a mission to expand that Sunni-Shia war from not just Iraq, but to expand it across the region to demonize Hezbollah in Iran as evil Shias. So they basically did this by um, promoting Sunni nationalism and basically Sunni supremacy. Uh, and this happened not just from the U.S., it also happened, it, it happened because of U.S. regional partners like Saudi Arabia, Qatar joined in on this, uh, and their channels in particular, like the, the, the satellite TV channels in the Middle East play a huge role in the way people view things, uh, just like the mainstream channels in the U.S. do. Right. So when you've got Al, you know, Al Arabiya, which is, Saudi, which is Saudi funded, and you have Al Jazeera Arabic, I mean, Al Jazeera Arabic became like a pro-genocide channel. Uh, nothing you would recognize if you watch Al Jazeera. Yeah, I was going to say English. because here, since like Muslims get demonized, it almost seems like they're a, you know a little more progressive than say CNN. But that's a trip that in Arabic countries, then they would actually be promoting that. <laughs> right. Well, they were Al Jazeera Arabic for like a time was kind of like this Arab nationalist channel that had like a very Muslim Brotherhood tinge to it, but it allowed like. Arab nationalists and socialist voices on it. And it was really good in its coverage of Palestine. But that really changed after the Arab uprisings of 2011, uh, which immediately the U.S. kind of like used this network, that it, this network of like allies and their media outlets it had created and then the groups it funds to promote Sunni nationalism. And so, I mean, what, what, like if you think about the Middle East, like, you know, you think about Muslims, right? They're the majority, but there's, you know, the Sunni Shia divide. And then there's a bunch of different minorities, minority religions, but Sunnis dominate. That's the dominant like religion. So you can think of Sunnis as like the white people. Okay. And what the U.S. did was it basically backed with its allies through propaganda and actual like, you know, material support, it backed like the Middle East form of white supremacy. And that's really why the Arab uprisings very, very quickly 
not only became militarized because of like the outside arming of different groups, but became like Sunnified, if you will. Uh, it became about Sunni nationalism and Sunni supremacy. And that is Al Qaeda's ideology. Like Al Qaeda's ideology, ISIS's ideology is Sunni supremacy. It's like a KKK group for Sunnis. But is so, that, so is that like um, Wahhabism or Salafism? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Basically, but that's sort of Wahhabism. An, that's sort Salafism, of like a, yeah. a Sunni supremacist type of yes, look. Yes, absolutely. Okay, I mean, okay. that's yeah. So because I thought so that was like a separate I, third kind of you know. No, so, that's that's. I mean, Wahhabism is like the foundation of Salafi jihadism, which is the the which is the ideology of Al-Qaeda and ISIS and like all the different, I mean, it's like all these different groups that had different names in Syria had the same ideology, Jaysh al-Islam, Jaysh al-this, Jaysh al-that, like whatever they decided to call it. You know, there was like a bajillion different groups. Right. Um, And there was of course like, you know, slight differences in tactics, but they ultimately had the same ideology. And a part of the reason that that was able to catch on so quickly is because of this media apparatus that existed. Um, and in Iraq, it existed too. It existed first in Iraq, actually. Uh, and that's one of the reasons, like people, when people think about resistance to the US occupation in Iraq, they don't think about it in Sunni Shia terms. There were Shia groups resisting the occupation. There were Sunni groups resisting the occupation. And those groups were killing each other. And the Sunni group that was killing was Al Qaeda in Iraq. And they were blowing up Shia mosques. They were, I mean, not to say that the Shia groups were like not brutal too, but like there was just like a different ideological basis to it. And historically in the Middle East, Shias have been oppressed. They've been the peasants. Um, and like, you know, there's anyways, that's like, a, you know, you could, we could talk about that for hours, yeah, but the no, reason I raised that is because it is, it's pretty fascinating. But the reason I raised that is because when, when Yazidis, like if you read my piece, I talk about how like their neighbors turned on them, their Sunni neighbors yeah, that's who, one like, of the more mind-blowing, there's a with. lot of really crazy things in that story, but that is also just really twisted. Very well, it's twisted. similar to the Holocaust, you know? Like, it's like you go back and you read these stories of, like, uh, you know, in Poland, like, neighbors turning on, like, people turning on their Jewish neighbors and, like, taking, and, like, like turning them in, uh, killing them, stealing all their shit. That's what happened. Yeah, I was saying you were saying like uh, one of the people was like recognized their biology teacher or something. See, that is just that is just so warped. That is really that's how that's how that's how genocide happens. Like you need for that kind of like uh, brutality, like that kind of like systemized uh, brutality to take place with so so much hatred. You need to have had like a basis. Uh, some sort of ideology that was being pushed on people before it took place. And that was the ideology was this kind of like Sunni uh, supremacy, this like Sunni nationalism and this hatred of minorities. Um, And it's like, I mean, that's, I mean, maybe I'm I'm being a little bit black and white here, but like, it's important to recognize that because just because the U S played a role in creating the conditions for that to happen. Um, And then of course, as it happened, like, I mean, it was crazy. Like, uh, I don't know if I mentioned it in my piece, but if you go back and you look at uh, when when ISIS first took over large swaths of Iraq, a lot of um, mainstream outlets called them Sunni rebels. Yeah, that's initially wild. when they took when they took over Mosul, that's they were like wild. Sunni rebels take over Mosul because they were like upset. Then the narrative you hear in the mainstream in the U.S. mainstream is. You know, they were upset because they were victims of like the Shia administration in Iraq, you know, of like evil Shia 
Maliki who was just like oppressing Sunnis and it's like that's not exactly what happened like it's way more complicated than that um and it's just and, and and that's why I never viewed my work in Syria or Iraq as different or disconnected because even initially in Iraq the mainstream media in the U.S. didn't view it as disconnected they were like Sunni rebels came from Syria you know <laughs> And they took back their area from the bad Shias. And then it was like, oh, shit, they're beheading Westerners. This is a problem. And that that's when ISIS really became really became a problem was when they like started the beheading videos. That's when the U.S. was like, oh, shit, what did we do? <laughs> like, we can't sell this. We can't sell this. Yeah, we can't sell this. We only wanted to, to destroy your country, but we still have to look like the good guys. Well, like so. they just, they just it's all about PR. They weren't, they weren't trying to destabilize the whole region. <laughs> they were like, we were just trying to fuck Syria. Like, we didn't mean for like James Foley to get beheaded. Like, oops. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, no. <laughs> Yeah, you cut up a journalist, but here's another hundred billion. Yeah, you know, you're giving us a hundred billion in arms sales. So I mean it's just it's just straight up gangster shit. It's just Yeah, it is. It is. Americans have no idea. It's so scandalous. But anyway. um, But anyways, it was fabulous uh, talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. And I I apologize again for my lack of coolness when it comes to music since you are a DJ. Why don't you why don't you (laughs) give us a little workout playlist? I don't know if I can do that. It's so I can't. It's too embarrassing. I can't do that. I can't oh. give you a workout for this. You can just guess. <laughs> like it's like it's like it'll be it'll be detrimental to my reputation if I do that. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> but anyways, it was uh, it's fabulous talking to you, and thanks for everything that you do. I think uh, thank you. I've learned a lot from you, and I think one of the things that you know I value besides just you know again just more anti-imperialist voices out there is that you do bring a lot of you know nuance and just really show just you know like even i remember i think you were on richard medhurst's uh podcast and talking about um just all the different lebanese political parties and it's just like it is it's like we really do not get the full story with a lot of these countries so it's good that you're going there and at least you know educating people on what you know what these places are actually like and what's really going on well thank you so much for saying that i appreciate it and thank you for everything that you do as well you've been listening to small changes stark reality on jasoncharles.net jasoncharles.net deep talk deep sounds that was so deep